Hello and welcome. This time, on our special Christmas episode, it's beginning to look a lot like stabbing in Bob Clark's 1974 proto-slasher classic, Black Christmas. My co-host John Deere and Dave Thomas, that's me, talk about Christmas-themed horror, slasher movies, and why there aren't any festive Jallo films. Please join us. He says the calls are coming from number six, Belmont Street. For Christ's sakes, Nash, you got it wrong. That's where the calls are going into. That's where they're coming from too, sir. In this episode, our discussion touches on gendered violence, abortion, and rape. I mean, my initial thought um, when when it started, and I had sort of, you know, um, I sort of changed sort of where I was going or how I was feeling this a couple more times than I expected in sort of the first in the first 20 minutes mm. my initial reaction was oh god it, it's not enough that John Carpenter nicks his title sequence from Hammer's Quatermass in the Pit he's just now nicked his entire opening sequence from from this film um and that was that was a genuine that was a genuine surprise um it's uh, it's that 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 opening sequence is 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 very is very well handled and the client particularly the yeah, the, the climbing onto the, uh, the the trellis, all the while done with done with POV, which must can't have been the easiest thing to set up in what, what 1974? 74. Yeah. So yeah, it's not it's not the easiest, not the smallest camera you'd be doing that with in the in the, in the world. Um, my initial excitement was then tempered. I think it took a while. Uh, for it to get going for me, and that's not necessarily the film's fault. That's me looking at things, you know, from forty odd years later. Going, you know, is this? How is this going to be set up? Am I looking for for cliches in one inherited, a, basically a, a dormitory full of full of pretty young girls? Uh, they try and separate them into well, at least two of them into into categories quite quickly: the slutty one and the goody two shoes one. Uh, and it seemed a bit that that seemed seemed a bit black and white. Uh, and I'm not entirely familiar with the um, uh, the setup of of, uh, of sorority houses because I'm British and I like to think not creepy. Uh, so things like I didn't really know <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't really know who why there was why why suddenly the late middle aged drunk woman came in until you. Explained. Oh, she's she's the sorority mother, um, which uh, the landlady, basically the people that that that's And nevertheless, um, I, I thought maybe some of the setup was a bit was a bit stereotypical. I appreciate stereotypical, as I say, looking from looking from several decades after it was made, and that was a surprise given that I'd realised that you know it had clearly influenced later and better and, and better known films. But once I had settled down, once we'd gone on to the next day, um, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, I, I particularly like it had sort of throwaway, dark, cynical seventies humour, uh, just mm. just ju- just hinting at something of, of of as as with a lot of a lot of film films around this time of sort of there's sort of like there's something there's something wrong wrong in wider society. Um, it had uh, minor characters that had sort of fun to do fun to do with like ridiculous. Um, uh, 
sort of playing with uh, with the policeman who doesn't know what the word fellatio means um and you know <laughs> yes. ha- having an entire sequence which is just about john saxon and his mate uh just taking the and then like almost like you could imagine it was like it, it was it was an outtake with two characters just unable to stop laughing uh which is really 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 surprising from a from a tonal point of view in the middle of this, but made it made it quite quite funny. There's a sequence earlier when one of the boyfriends is dressed as Father Christmas, giving giving presents to under to underprivileged children. Everyone sort of working in a in a college town. And I assume it's meant to be the the US. So everyone, there's quite a few Canadian accents. Uh, is it Canadian? This? Uh, it, it, yes. So yeah, shot yeah. in Canada. Uh, right. With, okay. Yeah. With a fair number of Canadian actors. Fair enough. And one or two Americans. Uh, but there's that sequence where they're handing out presents to the to the to the, to the, to the underprivileged kids, and the 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 student playing Father Christmas like doesn't doesn't give a fuck yes. <laughs> to, to the extent he pretty much says fuck and shit every other word. Is, this is a also when he's pissed off. I think. Uh, um, uh, that one of the students is staying on, and he can't basically spend the Christmas holidays getting his leg over with his girlfriend. So there's this wonderful sort of sort of casual casual cynicism that is clearly playing to a to, to a particular type of of, of audience member that thinks yes. it would like this. But when it goes to horror, uh, or what would be would be regarded to be regarded in the in the the, the, the the tropes of horror, it does it very well. For a slasher film, there isn't really much in the way of blood. Uh, there's some horrific, there is some horrific death, but it's done you know, in a very, very different um, style, or a very or sort of restrained style. And we have your death by asphyxiation, death by a swinging large uh, hook, um, mm. and yet it doesn't, it isn't gratuitous, as as you might expect. The phone calls, although initially starting with someone just being, you know, clearly upsetting, to, you know, in, in the way that he just. The thing he t- he describes what he wants to do do to the girls, but later on where he's having arguments with himself or with what we well, don't really know, but the 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 sound effect the the the, uh, the soundscape that's used uh, for that is um is is disturbing, um, and the final revelation was I'd always assumed that um, when a stranger calls was the cl- opening cliche for the calls are coming inside the house, but five years before we have it we have it here, indeed. Um, so overall, uh, it was uneven in places, but not necessarily to its to its detriment. Um, and after a slightly slow start, I thought it was um, I thought it was really enjoyable. Yes, just just because you you mentioned him, I want to give a shout out to John Rutter, who is credited as laughing detective. Um, right. Yes. Who, <laughs> who who literally has no function in the film, just to kill himself, just then to kill himself laughing when. Douglas McGrath as Sergeant Nash says something dumb, which he does for a major part of, you know, the running time of the film. But the interesting, the interesting thing is that that sequence and then the setup for that sequence um, has no function within the story other than as a piece of comedy. Yes, and that isn't something you'd find John Carpenter doing in the same way. Yeah. Um, uh, and now John Carpenter would, particularly in later films, would use humour. Um, that was as well, but to such a blatant gag to take basically we're taking the piss out of the, of the, of the pigs, lads. Um, uh, yet you know, it's it, um, not like the the police into India overall shown as particularly bad. But there's there's a strong sort of resistance to sort of sort of younger people and the police that would uh, yeah, the older generation as as personified by the first victim's dad, uh, who is everything sort of the sort of Nixon Christian uh, American. Mm. Um, that, you'd, that you'd expect, yet it sort of skewers both uh, 
in in the same way um uh, margot kidder's character is shown to have a drink problem clear clearly unhappy uh clearly has a bad bad home life yet um gets no uh gets no quarter from uh, from the, from a treatment in this film. Similarly, the Goody Two Shoes Virgin is the fir- is the first victim. Yes, I, I feel like Margot Kidder has my favourite line in the film, which again, during the scene where they're uh, giving Christmas presents to kids, she's actually getting one of them com- like completely pissed. Yeah, and she, and she turns to the uh, the stuffy Christian dad of the at that point missing girl. Well, we know she's dead, but no one else does. And says, "I think the little bugger's schnockered." <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit late to head out now. I think the little bugger snockered, son of a bitch. Hey, and I I don't know if anyone but Margot Kidder could actually sell that line because she is great in this. She uh, is. There's also a, a um whether it's it, it's intended or not, but she's talking. There's like a sequence again where she's drunkenly talking about um a, a toad that can that can mate for three days solid, and she's talking about her own disappointing sexual experiences, all while reading uh a, a, an ostensibly male porn magazine. Mm. Is there a is there a gay subtext? Yeah, I don't know actually. Could be. But anyway, um, so to circle back slightly. Yeah, indeed. Uh, um, so uh, we are discussing Black Christmas for anyone who uh, skipped the intro. So this is our uh, Christmas episode because there is a dearth, uh, as, as it turns out, of Christmas-related jelly, uh, which is kind of a shame. Now, perhaps not surprising because Christmas is a sort of slightly different emphasis in in Italy. Um, and the kind of Santa Claus type figure, um, and they have their you know their own kind of Christmas uh, mythical figure, La, La Bafana, who's like a witch, which sounds like it would make a really good movie, but that doesn't appear to have been one. Oh, that's interesting. So, so, so do we want to just spend a second talking yeah. about uh, because this is clearly uh, in a nice way a shallow homage, we'll call mm. it to, to keep it to keep it positive, but placed very definitely within. An American Christmas break. Now, yes. it gets gets away with you know, having not the traditional family, but having it in as a society with the family as a as a separate as, as a separate entity. But um, do you want to then just mention what sort of Christmas tropes come from Italy and why um, the, uh, the 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 of that of, of, of that uh, that you know that follows. From, from from Italian cinema might be considered slightly different. Certainly, um, there is like an Italian kind of Santa um, called Babbo Natale, which means Papa Christmas. Um, though he doesn't seem to be uh, quite as entrenched in culture as, well, the, I guess the American and by kind of association british christmas tradition i mean well we're in 2021 right so they probably are now i'm sure they're just as kind of overwhelmingly consumerized and doing all of the things that everyone else does because we kind of live in a something of a global culture certainly in the western world but the christmas in the sense that you know the the american uh coca-cola inspired version of Christmas which we're all we're all still enthralled to I don't think it was really a thing at the time that the Jallo was in its heyday um, and I don't know how much of that is because uh, the kind of the mythical figures weren't as, as sort of entrenched how much of it is because it's a very you know devoutly traditionally very devoutly Catholic country so actually mm, okay, yeah, yeah. doing something around Christmas that's horror related would be kind of a step too far 
um, in the same way that you know there, there were Christmas horror films subsequent to this one that got literally got protested because right, you're, okay. you know you're you're spoiling Christmas you know like Silent Night Deadly Night which is a much more formulaic and trashier slasher movie from some years after this. Um, you think it was just possibly easier to stay away from that as a yeah, as a sub as a subject, or, or, or maybe it didn't even particularly occur to anyone to do it. Now, of course, I have I do not have a entirely exhaustive encyclopedic knowledge of the Jallos. So if there is an obscure one that's set at Christmas, it's not what you told. It's not what you told me when we started well, this. <laughs> will no doubt tell me in the comments if anyone is listening. But yeah, it just doesn't appear to be a thing. So we had to look slightly further afield. Um, and there is a tradition in American, and in this case, kind of Canadian cinema, of Christmas-themed horror, and indeed Christmas-themed slasher movies. Mm. Um, now this, well, I think one of the reasons, A, this film is good, and B, it doesn't kind of follow too closely a lot of slasher tropes, is it kind of predates the the full-on slasher movement as is kind of defined by Halloween and Friday the 13th and certainly this this is thought of as a, a big influence on on those later movies but it is you know it's kind of the the starting point for not just those but then things like Silent Night Deadly Night and and um, there's a there's an English one from I guess the early 80s called Don't Open Till Christmas which is flat out appalling like virtually unwatchable um, Silent Night, Deadly Night's quite fun. And there's a really bizarre one called Christmas Evil. See what they did there? Um, which That's is awful. <laughs> which is kind of like, what if Taxi Driver, but if Travis Bickle worked in a toy factory? Um, okay. And it's actually quite interesting. It doesn't really kind of fit into what we're looking at, but certainly it's, you know, it's, it's worth seeking out. But this one, this one was actually billed as Silent Night, Evil Night on one of its American releases because I think it was one of those things in the sort of drive-in flea pit era that it got released a few times under different names. But Black Christmas is kind of how it's best known. Uh, And it is probably like a bridging point between the Jally, which by 74 is starting to tail off a little bit. Uh, and, And though it has some last, you know, sort of famous later hurrahs like Deep Red as we talked about and things like that but um, but it's it's predating the, the slasher kicking into gear in the late 70s um, and doing some really interesting things I think yeah um, I was interested to see it's directed by uh, Bob Clark indeed uh, who I know from A Christmas Story In, yeah correct um, Murder by Decree and Porkies already I've chosen a variety of of, of um, tastes in in his in his in his um in his outro uh i hadn't had had a look at what else what else he'd done i've heard of um baby geniuses uh Uh, the infamous uh, yes but but i've i've not i've not seen it and i i I should check out the karate dog (laughs) yeah when you you talk about kind of directors whose careers kind of tail off boy did his yeah, uh, have a fairly dramatic dro- drop away uh, with kind of rhinestone and baby geniuses too. Um, I, I see. And do you have the steelbook of the Karate Dog? I sadly, I do not oh, believe Jesus. that's yet had a Blu-ray release. It's the sort of thing I imagine Vinegar Syndrome have up their sleeves <laughs> uh, 
for uh, for a future release. They they now have a sub label called Fun City Editions, which is more kid kid centric movie. So who knows? Um, but yeah, because he started out like his first because he 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 was actually American though. He ended up working in Canada a lot because it was for, for tax reasons apparently. Um, he one of his early films is Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, which is quite a mm. uh, fun kind of horror comedy type thing. And then he made a film called Death Dream, which is basically sort of the monkey's paw um, kind of transposed to the Vietnam era, um, which is quite interesting. And then he did this. Then kind of seems to have branched out from the, the horror uh, genre. And obviously, as you said, Murder by Decree and Porky's and um, potentially a different type of horror um and mm. christmas story uh which you know I, i've never actually seen that have you seen that uh yeah once i um uh, i had a an american girlfriend um who watched it every every christmas so i i watched it with her one christmas it's like if you know if i was to show you know my wife start now star wars who's never seen star it's too late now sure yeah if it was a film i grew up with then i could see why i might watch it every, every year but you can't watch temple of doom for the first time at the age of 45 and go i love this because it's not for you uh, no. you have you have to have loved it when you were 9 um so i fear i've i'd missed the boat on that load of shit um but i yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that wouldn't have been my, my, my view had I seen it when I was eight. Um, yes. Although, uh, maybe. Anyway. It seems to be a Christmas movie that's much beloved of Americans, and I don't ha- haven't seen kind of a lot of affection for it elsewhere, which is interesting. No, we, we, we go for, you know, Ghost Stories for Christmas by Lawrence Gordon Clark. There's the go-to Christmas. It's a, every sort of thing from, like, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or... Christmas with the Cranks um, has that sort of whatever, you know, the sort of event piece which becomes sort of, you know, yeah, family crisis drama, but they all pull together to, to learn yeah. the, va- the value of fetishizing family is doesn't it make you sick? Sort of, <laughs> sort, sort of thing that's central to American hypocrisy. Um, but that's, I think, where a lot of this of stuff like this is the, you know, is the is the flip side. I wonder if there's something there, there as well around what we were just saying about the, the in Italy. But maybe they don't actually fetishize family quite so much. Are you are you serious, Italy? Not in terms of kind of fetishizing. We should have the perfect family, kind of you know the American sort of everyone sitting around. Maybe it's more of a you know that they actually feel like that's a genuine thing. So they're not fetishizing it in movies because they actually just it's just a given i don't know no maybe i don't know i thought about it but anyway um it seems very obvious to me that in this film the only real um relationship that you the only interaction you really see with a with a pet with a parent is the one half of the conversation that that margot kidder's character has with them her mum who implies is fucking off with her younger boyfriend to do something else that christmas and not including her and she thinks she calls her mum a whore uh, or something as well. The only the only thing that's anywhere similar is you see the first victim's dad, Claire's dad, yep. but that's after she's been killed, and he's clearly very conservative and disapproving of her, disapproving of her lifestyle. There's no interaction between them because she's dead by this point, mm. and that's a really, really brave thing. To, at no point does anyone, until right at the very end, uh, know um, what's happened. Well, actually, no, at any any point, know what's happened to all the victims. Exactly. Yeah. 
at what so at, at the end the last the last girl standing sees two of the victims mm. um before she's uh, before she's found by the killer and then um the uh, the the climax ensues but it's, it's in, at no point is everyone aware that these women are even more than missing or even missing they just occasionally go i'm going for a lie down and then they're killed and never seen again but because of the truncated sort of um time sequence of the of the of the, of the last third of the film uh the, that never becomes an issue until until the very until sort of almost the uh, the epilogue um, when so I forgot who's the main character Jess played by Jess Hussey. This, yeah and until they're looking after Jess but Jess is uh, unconscious at this point and can't really explain what happened and I'm still not sure did she kill her her boyfriend or did the murderer kill her boyfriend and leave I'm guessing she killed her boyfriend I believe she, she is meant to have killed her killed her boyfriend thinking he was the killer an excellent uh, transition to a quick rundown of the plot so we are in a sorority house in probably america but it, everything is very canadian it is just before christmas everyone is or many of the girls who live in the sorority house are about to go home for the holidays so they're having a little get together and gift exchange uh and so we have uh, olivia hussey as jess who is our uh main character who seems sort of troubled by something uh, we have Mar- Margot Kidder as Barb, who is the smart-mouthed alcoholic, uh, and also really quite hot in this movie. Um, mm. We have Andrea Martin as Phil, who has sort of frizzy hair and glasses. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of about the extent of her characterisation, to be honest. Um, and then, as you said, we also have uh, Claire, who is a sort of goody-two-shoes, who is offended by... Um, Barb kind of making fun of her lack of a sex life. Um, yeah, that also has that. That has a genuinely offensive line when yes. um, clearly because Barb's had sort of give sass back to the the well the killer as as it will be from the from the first phone call where he's telling them that he wants to uh, what he wants to do to them, um, and she sort of you know gives shit back and um, it ends with him saying I'm going to kill you. And then, so yeah, Claire says, you shouldn't have, you know, done, done that. A, a girl was raped around here recently. And her response is, you can't rape a townie. Yes. Um, is shocking. Um, yeah. Doubly more so that it's delivered by by a young woman. Um, that you're, oh, God. And there's, I mean, in, it's an effective line in that it displays uh, of so much prejudice against a certain type of person and the idea that, you know, they're asking for it. But it's it's genuinely shocking to hear it said like that. Yes. Um, and it's, yeah, it's um, it paints her as, like, stereotypically was, you know, as a bad girl. And it's, I think, unsurprising that she's also very attractive as well as the sort of person you're meant to, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're the, the bad boys are meant to like. Um, but it's, um, it's, it was, un, it was, I wasn't expecting it. It was unnerving to, slightly shocking to, 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 to hear that line. Indeed. Um, so as you say, they, they receive an obscene phone call, which is, is very bizarre because it almost sounds like there are multiple voices on the phone. Um, it's clearly very kind of crazy. But as you say, the, the very last moment, 
um, where he says, I'm going to kill you, is, it suddenly becomes sort of quite lucid sounding. Um, so that kind of puts a dampener on the evening. It doesn't look like they're having much fun anyway, to be honest. Everyone seems to be quite miserable. Uh, mm-hmm. And Claire, uh, who's played by Lynn Griffin, goes up to her room and she's packing to go home. Her dad is coming to collect her. And as she looks into the wardrobe... Uh, Searching for her enormous cat. Yes, yes. Um, and all of the... Uh, dresses that she has are sort of wrapped in in kind of dry cleaning plastic and um, in one of the a a very iconic scene from the film a crazed killer who was kind of climbed in up the trellis outside uh, in a impressive POV shot as you mentioned um, wraps her in uh, wraps her head in plastic and suffocates her to death and then drags her into the attic where she's uh, unseen by the rest of the people in the house Um, at this point the house mother of the sorority, Mrs. Mack, as played by Marion Waldemar, um, shows up, who, uh, much like uh, Barb, is a raging alcoholic. Um, and there's there's a lot of business around where she's got her kind of but cooking yeah, cherry stat, stash of, around the house, yeah, yeah, <laughs> including yeah. in a toilet tank, which I thought was quite yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, Claire's father, who the, the aforementioned Mr. Harrison, who, as you said, is uh, a very sort of both small and large C conservative, uh, turns up at the university and is unable to find his daughter and no one seems to know where she is um, so um, he uh, reports this to the police in the form in the uh, comedic somewhat comedic form of Sergeant Nash Douglas McGrath who is the person uh, as they're kind of interviewing various people um, from the sorority house um, as, as you said um, Barb gives him her number as fellatio 2163 and he doesn't know what fellatio is so he just writes it down uh, which comes back later in the form of laughing cop. Also, the the thing that's troubling Jess is that she actually she wants an abortion uh, because she has been uh, impregnated by an older uh, older student who's in a uh, musical conservatory, uh, presumably part of the same university. Does that um, mean conservatoire? Conservatoire. Does that no 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 no? He says. I, I believe it's the same thing. I believe it's the same thing. It is thing. right, yeah, because a musical conservatory just sounds like a slightly tacky thing you stick on the outside of your house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you've met my neighbours. Yay! Um, but he, I assume that's we would say conservatoire, but it means because they just yes. call it conservatory, right? Okay, yes. yeah. Um, keeps and he's apparently been there for like at least seven years, which is probably why he's such a miserable tosser. Um, so this is Peter, played by um, 2001's Kia Delia. Um, who apparently doesn't age ever because he doesn't appear to have aged between 2001 and this or indeed between this and 2010 Odyssey 2 which came out in the early 80s so um, yeah, he's, he's and he's got an odd look about him which I think serves this kind of role very well well I um, think you're clearly meant to think there's something slightly psychopathic about him because yes. he seems even when he's angry and he's angry that a woman would go ahead and get an abortion without his consent. He doesn't understand that Jess might not want to marry him. Um, he's shown to be very, I mean, it's, it's, he's shown to be the very opposite of um, what a strong feminist character um, this is meant to is, 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 is meant to be. But even when he expresses his emotions, he does it in a curiously flat way. 
um, whether he says he loves her or he's angry with her, there's something, you know, I possibly thought that maybe that's because Kia Duella's, you know, pissed off he hasn't, his career hasn't gone stellar post-2001, uh, but being slightly less cynical um, in scenes like where he uh, sort of screws up his his his, his piano recital to, to, the, to, to, to the inspectors, um, that there's sort of simmering rage, but he can't, demonstrated in any way shape or form he doesn't know he hasn't got an outlet for 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 his emotions or indeed he can't control uh certain things that may come from his emotions and that seemed very much a signposting that he might be the killer too obvious now maybe but in 1974 i don't know but i assumed that was sort of a sort of how he was sort of meant to meant 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 to play it yes and there's something some quite subversive stuff in there because he's saying well i'll leave the conservatory we'll get married and raise the kid and Jess's response is, I don't want to marry because I just don't want a kid. Hmm. Which And I want to do stuff. That and I want to yeah, do yeah, stuff, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the kid doesn't feature into that at this point. And so this is 74. So this is the year after mm, Roe versus mm. Wade. So th- right, th- this, yeah. is, this would be quite, I think this would be quite kind of sort of strong stuff, it, you know, from yeah. a sort of an emotional and political point of view, if you were watching this in the US in 74. So, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of, of fascinating subtext going on here. So, yes, it's subversive in the, in, in the right ways mm. in which so much horror isn't. Mm. Uh, or, but good horror um, generally is. Good horror is... I mean, there's often a way you can, you can layer sort of lots of genre as, as films where messages are sort of smuggled in under, under, the, un, under the, uh, the speculative fiction radar. But... Th- this is a horror film where it's just basically basically a woman saying it's my right and my choice to have an abortion and fuck you you don't get a you don't get a say in it because it's my body and I and I'll do what I want in that particular in in this you know this particular this is my this 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 is this is my decision and that's you know amongst other things that you know are generally surprising or empowering about about horror and particularly what you can say potentially about. Um, problematic uh, feminist interpretations of, of, of horror and female suffering. But that's, you know, that's a strong message. Mm. And certainly in, in subsequent and slightly uh, retrograde horror, uh, the, the character who is pregnant and wants an abortion would pretty yeah. soon be in the victim pool. In fact, that was in stage fright, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and she was seen to be, you know, the, the sort of slut-shaming in that sort mm. of the training with that. But here, I mean, particularly the scene, I think it's later on when uh, John Saxon is um, as the, as the, as the, I hate the word, lieutenant. Lieutenant. <laughs> um, lieutenant Fuller. Clearly is, is going for, well, he's, well, he's, prob- he's probably the killer. When he listens in on their phone call, he comments on um, his comment that um, he says, you know, you're going to kill my baby or kill our baby or kill the child. Mm. Um, and he says, that's an unusual way of putting it. You know, I fucking wish it was now. Yeah. Um, but it's but it's you know it's very politicised that you're you're murdering a human life, uh, and this is you know that's an unusual way of putting it. As he said, as if that's an out there or uh, out, an outlying opinion that you would mm. consider it that you consider the fetus, particularly you know the the, the earliest point. She's not you know more than you know less than sort of three you know, within sort of three months or whatever mm. uh, in the in that first in that trimester uh, that it would be considered a human life. And yeah, so and. Clearly, there's no way of saying it's you know that's clearly uh, you know a far out opinion that shouldn't be that should not be con- that should not be condoned. Mm, yeah, and in, and as you said about 
sort of the way he talks about killing the baby, which actually which then plays into another obscene phone call they get, which this time instead of the perpetrator talking about what he's what wants to do to them turns turns into this very warped conversation about the character billy who we assume is the killer because it's never really explained who the killer is or who billy is really or who billy is that he's done something to the baby and throughout the sort of subsequent conversations you get this refrain of billy where did you put the baby which then of course implicates peter because he's talking about why are you trying to kill our baby? And so Peter, um, upset by the conversation the, the night before his big recital, completely screws it up, as you said, and takes his rage out by destroying his piano with a microphone stand. Um, but with the uh, the missing girl and an, uh, evidently another girl who's not from the sorority house uh, has also gone missing and uh, in the area. So then we uh, introduce uh, John Saxon, uh, from our very first episode in The Girl Who Knew Too Much, uh, who is here as Lieutenant Fuller. Uh, and obviously Saxon, you know, turned up in uh, many a horror and exploitation movie from uh, another Canadian slasher classic, or in this case non-classic, Prom Night, um, all the way to Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, so he's very he's on very quite familiar ground here. Um, so he gets involved. They do a search. They find the body of the other missing girl, though they still haven't gone in the loft and found Claire, uh, who is uh, basically parked in front of a window um, in a rocking chair uh, with saran wrap over her face. I assume they're slightly going um, for a slightly sort of psycho feel there, aren't they? I, be- I believe so. I think that's yeah. That's sort of the, 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 the look. Of it. But nevertheless, you know, it's he's yeah. He's he's moved her up there. And the sorry, just the the, the scene between uh, when Claire is killed and when the uh, Mrs. Mac is killed. It's implied then that the killer remains in the house. Do you think? I believe that's the implication. Yeah, yeah. That he's sort of his hiding spot is up in the attic. Um, I don't think he's meant to have been there all along because um, cause there's, a, there's a slasher some years after this called The House on Sorority Row where the killer's been living in the loft for, for decades. Um, whereas this, I think he's sort of, it's, it's a, uh, a hiding place of opportunity. But as you say, Mrs. Mack goes up into the attic, sees uh, Claire's body and, and then gets a um, sort of block and tackle hook. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that was in the loft. Mm. Presumably to kind of pull stuff up there um, through through her uh, in response, um, and also is then sort of slightly forgotten. Everyone's kind of running around worried about Claire and indeed, and yeah. Girls. But no one actually seems. To, but then I guess she is sort of a visibly drunk at all times adult. So perhaps they just think uh, <laughs> that she's gone off and fallen asleep somewhere. Or, does she go up I, into the? Sorry, does she go up into the attic looking for the cat? I believe she does, yeah. So the first two victims are killed because of the cat. Well, it's not the cat's fault. Mm, <laughs> I mean, nah. to be, I mean, it, you know, it's a cat. It probably wouldn't care anyway. I, I no. love my cat dearly, but he is a psychopath. So um, <laughs> that's just just cowardice. There's um, basically there's a good bit where she's like getting, she she catches a lift uh, from Claire's dad into into town, and she's she's calling for the cat, and then without zero, like, where are you, you? Prick, yes. as well, and then he he hears, and it's like I had some sympathy with, yes. with that. calling for a cat. It seems seems an exercise. It seems an exercise in futility. But yes, it, it very she, much is. Yeah, yeah she, can, she, can she, she disappears when all the girl, the other girls who are victims have sort of the the excuse that they've gone to bed. So you've mm. got some hours to play with before they're before they're considered sort of missing. Yeah, no one 
seems to really care too much that the the the, the older middle-aged lady has yeah. Has, 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 has gone but again it's it's strangely it's bloodless when she, she gets you know, she gets a hook through the head and sort of is held up you see a long shot of her later on still you know still in the uh, still in the attic with 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 claire but it's not it's not gory no they don't lean into it very much at all no which, which and, no. and i think that restraint really helps them well mm. i say helps the film um i don't think it, it doesn't necessarily I, I think it's a good choice for the film let me put it that way yeah um, yeah i agree so the police have made a bit of a slow start but but uh fuller puts together the calls and the killings uh or at least one killing that they know at this point may be related and the disappearances so they tap their phone but this is of course 1974 phones um so you have to keep the killer on the line in order to be able to track for about an hour yes yes for the the rest of the running time of the film pretty much um so leslie carlson i know very little about but he's the uh, cop or technician who puts a tap on their phone um and there is a bit of a massive howling clue here because they say how many phones have you got and he's like well there's this one and there's one in the kitchen oh and mrs max got her own line in her room but no one's yeah. called us on that one yeah yeah that's so a nice therefore idea. we're going to ignore that one um this will be important later um, actually okay. actually they do they do see like little chekhov's guns better than most because mm. um you could like there's a bit where the door sticks uh, yes. And and Mrs. for the first bit of Mrs. Max, she can't get in, um, which is which you might. It, it's quite a long time since that that Chekhov's gun pays off mm. uh, when uh, when Lizzie can't get out can't, can't get out of the house, which is slightly irritating. But then because initially I thought, oh for fuck's sake, ah oh, yeah, yes. sorry about 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 an hour and a half ago, the do- we established the door stuck a bit. That was yeah. Yes. Um. So subsequently, Barb goes up to bed after creating a, a, a scene, a drunken scene um, and uh, has an asthma attack while dreaming a stranger was in her room um, they, go, they have some more calls but uh, the, the killer is not on the line long enough and then in the most jello, very Argento-y bit mm-hmm. um, so Barb appears to be a collector of glass ornaments including a glass unicorn um, yeah. and the killer goes into her room and stabs her to death using the horn of the glass unicorn an absolutely brilliant sequence i think that it is, is yeah. fantastic yep again it's not gratuitous a lot of it's no. sold by her hand uh on the on on, on the, if the side of the bed or the, or the or the sideboard um and it's and it's done i mean it's 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 done a lot with the, for the you see the killer you see the slashing you don't spend so much time on the forgive me the penetration and the actual mm. And then more in sort of the reaction to you know the hand or uh, the 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 cutaway to tell it, which was I thought very effective. Mm. Yes, uh, and at, at that point, that's when Peter calls, sort of somewhat incoherently, sounding very much like the killer. Um, which, although again, he doesn't stay on the line for very long. At this by this point, the cops are listening in, um, so Fuller actually hears him, and as you say, kind of thinks that's an odd way of putting it and thus therefore he is the he is now the red herring um that everyone is going after phil goes to check on barb and dies <laughs> and, and that's pretty much it she goes into the room and dies and again but you don't she sort of like looks to her left clearly mm. there's the killer and the door shuts 
Yes. And you don't need any more. And that's, that, that, that's, there's, there's no, there's, you know, compare that to, you know, Fulci. Mm. Uh, yes, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where we'll, we'll spend five minutes on a face melting. Yes. Um, you know, this is, yeah, this, there are other, there are other, other things. Aesthetically, it's, it's, it's different to what you, you would expect or what the slasher, uh, slasher becomes. Yes. And, um, actually, what we'll just mention sort of how, effective and kind of tense the sequences are of basically uh graham the police technician kind of running through this phone exchange trying to follow each bit of the exchange tapping into the next one to see where the call is coming from mm. um and yeah it's i mean it's it's fascinating a bit of obsolete technology of course but uh but they make a, they, they, they make tension out out of that as well you know can, can he yes. get there in time can he hold it in time and you know yes. the physical the actual the, the the physicality of the exchange becomes uh you know a a maze in which to sort of lose myself in technology, and it, it's, I mean, n- then it was clearly done for the for the pure tension. Now you're just jaw dropped at the primitive nature of him. Do I reckon? I think he's in. Is he in the Fly? He's the do- he's the Doctor in the Fly. He is indeed Canadian. Then he will definitely be. Um, He'll definitely be in a Cronenberg film. <laughs> in a Cronenberg film. <laughs> yeah, no. Yes, indeed. Uh, he's in Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly. A Christmas story. Um, so clearly someone who was uh, well-liked by both Cronenberg and Bob Clark. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yes, as, as we were saying, he's the chap who is uh, tasked with running around the exchange to find the source of the call. Uh, and at that point, he does indeed do that. Radios uh, Lieutenant Fuller. Um, and, and there's a lovely little bit there where he kind of says... Um, oh. Uh, Oh, oh, does he radio? He radio the st- actually no. He radios the station, doesn't he? Because it's the mm. idiot sergeant. Yeah, who, you've who got one job them. now. Yes, don't and, don't and, fuck and, this up. And he basically says he says the, the this is the address the call's coming from. And of course, Fuller's immediate reaction is, oh, you've screwed it up. That's the uh, address that we've got the phone tap on." And he says, "No, no, that's definitely where the calls are coming from." So that's the infamous legendary moment. The calls coming from inside the house. I swear that when a stranger calls is the noted. That's where the cliche comes from. The entire the pre sort of pre credit setup for mm. that film is the calls coming from inside the house with the babysitter. Yes, but yes, Carol Kane. Is, yes, yeah, indeed, yes, Carol. Kane. But this is this is five years before. Yes, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, so the the kind of source of that it's the urban legend babysitter trope. Um, which was already around by the time this movie came out, and that was apparently that that was a thing in the sixties in, initially, um, and the source of it was apparently a murder in the nineteen fifties. Although in that there wasn't really any evidence that anyone was phoning from inside the house, but apparently that kind of morphed into this uh, urban legend of you know the killer is in the house. You know, ch- have you checked on the children? Which is what they kind of specifically do in. Um, when a stranger calls, of course. But yeah, this does this precedes it definitely, um, and it's a great moment. Like John Saxon mm. really sells it. Um, and at this point, uh, Jess finally sees the killer, realizes that at least Barb and Phil are dead, although she has not, she does not yet discover, or does not discover at all, in fact, that Claire and Mrs. Mack are up in no, the loft. Sorry, but there's a, the the bit that I was thinking of before before that is John Saxon calls our hapless desk sergeant and then says, yes. "Right, you've got basically. I know you screw everything up, but call her and just say very very calmly leave the house." Yes. Without telling her why, because she'll freak out at what happens. 
<laughs> yes. He calls her. She freaks out. She goes upstairs she, to Barb's room and sees that uh, her friends have been killed. Uh, and arranged, actually. So they've been kind yes, of arranged yes, indeed, somewhat yeah. you know, neatly. Um, and I, and that's something I forgot to mention. So Claire in the loft um, has this weird kind of burnt doll on her lap now, uh, which presumably belongs to uh, Billy or the baby that Billy did something to, uh, who's called Agnes, as I recall. Because um, mm. one of his calls is Agnes, it's me, Billy. Um, and so she... Uh, sees him through a crack in the door, manages to uh, escape. As you said, can't get out of the front door because it sticks. Uh, runs into the cellar, and then Peter is outside, uh, clearly in in sort of some emotional state, and breaks the window to get in. Bad call. Bad call. And then, as the cops show up, they find Jess basically comatose and Peter dead evidently being sort of beaten to death by Jess. With a poker. With the poker. Mm, yeah. And then, having still not found the other two bodies in the attic, the police are sort of wrapping up. Jess is put to bed, and uh, everyone pretty much leaves. Um, oh, Claire's dad, Claire's dad comes back and faints. Yes, that's he does. A weird, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a weird... Uh, he comes off one final act. They've still not found his daughter. You know, yeah. like two days later. Yeah, it's not yes. Uh... And as the camera pans out from the house, much as it joined it at the beginning of the film, the phone begins to ring again, which is a hell of an ending. <laughs> mm. Now, I do wonder if hopefully the phone is still tapped, so maybe the phone's starting to ring again. But also the implication is the killer's... Jess. There's no reason to expect the killer isn't in the house. Well, we don't find out well, exactly. who, the killer, who the killer is because it doesn't matter. We barely see... We see half the killer's face in a, in a very quick sequence. Mm. Um, and at no point is the killer's identity or motivation ever, ever established. No, and it's very much... Yeah, cause, because that would obviously become the, the slasher trope of you mm. know, what is mm. the motivation for the killer. And, yeah. and very often, taking that Halloween kind of... Uh, it's not a pre-credit sequence, but it's sort of the opening yeah. sequence where you know the killer is a child and then subsequently you know the killer would be burnt or the killer would you know be stabbed whatever it would be in subsequent sort of slasher movies you'd always have the setup of the killer and then the killer comes back whereas mm. in this the killer comes back but we don't know from what or where or why which yeah. is really effective mm. um and makes him kind of a kind of a force of nature in in some ways yeah um, and it's one of those perfect things where it doesn't matter yes you don't you don't need to know but it doesn't affect the drama it's just it's, it's, it's the McGuffin. And like like the best ghost stories, are short, often short stories, without explanation. Uh, any explanation you would give, you, you can simply add that in yourself. If the director or the writer did it, then it just slightly diminishes... Oh, I now, I now know. It slightly diminishes yes. the horror. The, 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 the man is, to all intents and purposes, faceless, motiveless. Um, he just wants to kill these girls and he's probably got well he's killed all but one of them and there's a strong implication he's still able to kill kill the last one i mean it's 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 again the focus as with so much just with so much yellow is not with the police because that's not what these films are these films are often about the individuals affected rather than the procedure but again and although the police are much much more sympathetic than they are in a lot of uh, the jallos we've we've talked about, you again have to question their motives of just leaving, like a, presumably a highly traumatized girl who's you know either asleep or you know comatosed in a room on her own, 
uh, they just shut the door, lock it, and go right, and they just leave a and leave a leave leave, leave a copper on leave a copper on the door outside. You know, this yeah. woman needs taking to hospital. This woman is going to need a lot of counselling. This woman's going to need her family. Uh, there was a, all her friends have been killed. Oh, except the one, even the ones you don't know about yet. Don't leave, don't don't leave her on her own. Uh, and the final justice, there's still a killer in the house. Because um, th- there is even a point actually where, uh, and I think. Lieutenant Fuller is party to the conversation where Jess says, oh, it can't be Peter because one of the calls came in when he was somewhere else. So they have oh, kind no, of well, set up that it's probably, that it's not him. Well, they said that he's he's there when one of the calls takes place, or had just mm. been there when one of the calls takes place, thinking that he can't get to run. Now, from what we later learn, um, he theoretically could have got, presumably, to Mrs. Mack's flat. Uh, sure. at, that, at, that, at that time, so that leaves that potentially potentially open. Um, it's only, and you never because you never see the killer. Is there actually? I'm just I'm thinking. I've not I've not thought about this this before. Is there a way that he still could be the killer? Maybe. I mean, it is it is somewhat ambiguous. I Do think. you I think ever familiar. actually? Does the movement work? She runs down. He escapes from. She pulls. So he pulls her hair on the stairs. After she's trying to get out of the front door, she runs, locks, bolts, bolts the, the door, goes down into the cellar, and then we see Billy at the at the door. Sorry, not Billy, um, Peter at the door. Could that be him? I know it's not the same. Presumably not. The, it's not. It's not Kia Duella as as the as Billy. Um, but could it be implied that that's the same, the same person? Yeah, presumably he could have got outside in that time because there is. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, I think it's you know it adds to the you know the the. Um, certainly, the rewatchability to kind of be kind of hmm, is you know is there a do the mechanics work if he is indeed the killer? Um, well, why does he go to the cellar in the first place? Why does well, he exactly. bang on the front? Bang, why does he bang on the front door? Yeah, as you say, it, it could there, there is potential there for it to to work either way. I think, which is one of the things that makes it interesting. And all we see at the end is the phone. All here is the end is the phone ring. That doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. Yeah, because there's actually there's, there's virtually no music in this either, which is another. Oh no, but there, yeah, but there is that sound. The sorry, um and the thing it reminded me of most um, is forgive me is uh, the Radiophonic Workshop in the first Dalek serial for Doctor Who. They have a they have a slight sound. The sound of the Dalek city. Uh, has a slight. I mean, later on, it goes to sort of a theatrical sort of heartbeat in later in later areas of Doctor Who. But there's a there's a slightly ethereal higher. Uh, just the general sound of the Dalek city. And in the first episode, in particular, before the Daleks have been revealed, and the Doctor and his companions are exploring the city, you just sort of hear this 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 sound. And that's and it was a similar sound that accompanied the phone calls, which are, which are, I, 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 that's coincidence. I don't think I don't think um, anyth- anyone had thought all oh, that. Yeah, Doctor Who, fifteen years or ten, eleven years, eleven years ago. Let's 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 use that. But I think it was just someone trying to you know use a you know from a limited palette of uh, similar. Mm. Yeah, this sound, this sounds creepy. Um, mm. But yeah, it was that was that was very. But yes, there's no real tension music, and particularly at the end, that's mm. that, yeah. It was no, it was no worse for it. No, and generally, everyone in it is very good. Like the performances all round are pretty strong. The, the only the. Arguably, the weakest performer is probably Olivia Hussey as Jess. She's a bit on the wooden side. Yeah, and it's not like because often heroes have nothing to do. Um, like you know, I often think, say in Star Wars, Luke Skywalker often is a hard role because there's not a huge amount to get beyond. I I want to do more than this, uh, and you have you have a lot of sort of whiny. Um, 
sort of uh, student scenes where, where, the, where the master explains the plot to you. Uh, and because so much of the plot has to be carried by that dialogue, you have a second character in Han Solo who can just do the cool stuff and not have to worry about moving the plot. So there's a lot more stuff to get you to, there's a lot of fun to be had with that, with that character. And here... Um, there was potentially less. She's got the motivation of sort of the the breaking away from the boyfriend and the the empowerment of of abortion, um, but because she's got to carry a lot of the plot, a lot of the scenes are yeah. It's 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 a it's a slightly more thankless task than than a, than say a role like like Mugo Kidders. Yes, which she just throws herself into. With, oh yeah, that's with abandon, yeah, 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 wonderfully well. Yeah, I mean she's sort of got a certain amount of shallow uh, adjacent. Um, maybe kind of. Uh, she's in uh, Sisters, which is Brian De Palma's film. As he's starting his course of insisting he's not doing, he hasn't seen Jallo while doing films which are very Jallo. Yeah, she, she, she's she's right up there. Um, <laughs> and we will come on to Brian De Palma in our second season. As a as a kid who was born in 1972, you know, I will always love Margot Kidder because she's Lois Lane. Amateurville horror as well is her, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah. I love that slightly. Well, no, a lot less. If we're honest. Okay. Fair um, <laughs> uh, what was the legacy of this film? How was it? How was it received? But what? What about sort of contemporary reviews? Was it? Was it received well? It had so it had mixed reviews when it came out. Uh, Variety slagged it off. Um, Gene Siskel of the famously of the Chicago Tribune called it a routine shocker. Which I don't think is true at all. No, 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 I don't. And also, um, Variety can fuck off after they clearly have never heard of Gaslight. Well, I'll never, I'll never forgive them for calling the Invisible Man gaslighting the movie. I think you'll find <laughs> that's Gaslight. Oh, either version, either version yes. is fine. Um, and it was originally a play, quite. And it was a re- yes, really. exactly. <laughs> but the Los Angeles Times, um, though they said it had a gratuitously evasive ending. Um, it was a smart, stylish, Canadian-made little horror picture that is completely diverting. It may be that its makers simply couldn't figure out how to end it. I would di- I utterly disagree with that assessment about the ending. Yes, it makes, the ending you, is it, it, it makes you... It makes it... Yeah, it, 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 it makes you... And it doesn't provide you with the easy answers that you want. And that's sometimes the way it goes. And you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to deal with that. Halloween was inspired by Clark talking about what a Black Christmas sequel would be. As you said... There's a lot of Black Christmas in Halloween. Certainly the opening sequence and uh, the kind of stalking in the house. And Clark said that he didn't think it had any particular political leanings, but um, critics have noted it's very kind of feminist in its treatment of the female characters. As you say, it's not not gratuitous at all, with the exception of sort of the one very politically incorrect line, which is probably us looking through the sort of veil of history i mean it's still it's still unconscionable but then i think that's to say something about the character yeah um, indeed and even you know it, it's the sort of thing where had this been made 10 or even sort of five years later the the acerbic bad girl would probably have you know been in the shower at some point even sort of getting killed in the shower and that's not the case in this at all it's like there's there's no real very little kind of objectification of the of the female characters which obviously did not last uh in the slasher genre yeah, it subsequently definitely has become like a a, a big cult favorite. Mm. And again, um, and so it's been, 
in the way that it treats so in terms of the uh, uh, its non gratuitous nature in, the, in terms of the, the the women. There's a again I return to the gay subtext about about the, the, mm, about, about, about Margot Kidder's character you know, mm. talking about the inadequacies of men while looking at the Playboy centerfold. You know, it's, yes, indeed. Uh, it, yeah. Um, yes, which is I guess is about as close as you get to kind of any nudity yeah. in the movie. Um, mm. It's been remade twice. Uh, no sequels. Not, <laughs> no sequels. Um, oh, okay. But remade twice. Yeah. But remade Blimey. twice. Um, so in terms of Christmas horror, mm-hmm. it's probably the best one. Are we? Are you discounting uh, the, the the first story from Tales from the Crypt? It's it's a bit. I mean, oh, of course, yes, the yeah, the, uh, the, the classic Joan Collins, the, 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 uh, the Joan Collins, house. and clearly yeah. like very problematic, <laughs> horrible Father Christmas again yeah. for no reason. He's trying to get in the house. Um, it's it's less subtle and plays less politically with um, with than, than Black Christmas, but it's only you know a fifteen minute, a fifteen twenty minute sequence. But it's a home invasion at, 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 at Christmas anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't, I, no evidence, as far as I'm aware, that that had any particular bearing on this. Because the other thing that it really reminded me of, and again, I I don't know that there's any kind of direct connection in terms of the filmmakers having seen it is in um, Mario Bava's Black Sabbath uh, aka The Three Faces of Fear there's this there's the whole sequence um, where a woman's being terrorised in her apartment by someone on the phone mm. yeah now, it, it, it's not then it, the, the, the killer is not inside the house in that one until the very end when he uh, does turn up and, and kill her but yeah the, the, in terms of the the terrifying calls and I'm sure that I, I guess there are probably other films that have used that particular trope it was supposedly inspired by the um the writer had seen a new story about killings uh taking place over christmas uh, black christmas originally originated in the headlines of the montreal newspapers screenwriter roy moore read about a series of killings that occurred over the christmas holiday and sensing a good setup for a horror thriller set about creating a new storyline so um yeah, so it seems to have kind of come primarily from mm. that news story and obviously the uh, babysitter killers in the house trope. Sleigh bells, they could have called it. Because <laughs> of the phone ringing. That's sleigh, good. That sleigh good. bell. You say it's good. Yeah. It isn't, but thank you. Um, but yeah, sleigh bells. I mean, it's no, it's no worse than Christmas Eve-ville. No, that's, that's, that's fucking awful, isn't it? <laughs> It's a terrible title for a quite quite an interesting movie. Has um, anything been made of um, Santa being an anagram of Satan? Oh, what like Satan claws? I, that sort what? of I thing. Think, yes, I yeah. think you. I think you made it right. I'm <laughs> fairly sure. Is there a Satan claws? I think there. I do you know. I think there might be. I have not seen it. Or is that? I mean, that could just be a sort of Krampus, couldn't it? Because because Krampus yes. has become popular since you know, as this sort of anti-Santa. Yes. Um, uh, there was a yeah. direct-to-video uh, horror movie from 1996 called Satan Claws, and it has a, currently has a rating of 2.5 out of 10 on the IMDb. Going to check that bad boy out. Um, Satan Claws. Oh my god, I think it's directed by someone Italian. I may have lied, Jeez. that may be the Christmas Jello. Oh wow! Is it sorry? Is claws? It's not like the Tim Allen pun. pun it's claws. It is C L A U S. Yes, Satan claws, not claws. It is indeed C L A U S. As is it a principle of something? Mister Trick there. Maybe the sequel. Because in in, in that way, sort of, uh, you know, you know um, Faust could be called the Satan claws. You know, uh, you know, he's got a contract. 
on the night before Christmas, a serial killer dressed in a Santa Claus suit stalks the streets of New York, New, New York no, looking you, for blood. Were you, were you trying to do that in a New York accent? New York. Sorry, what's that? New York. Go on. It seems this madman is building the perfect Christmas tree and adorning it with the parts of his victims. Is that a perfect Christmas tree? Uh, yeah. It's up to an actor, his police officer girlfriend, and a voodoo woman to stop him. Do, do, uh, do, do, do they mean? Do they mean black woman? <laughs> oh shit! That's, wow, that sounds that sounds bad. I'm actually quite surprised. That sounds I haven't bad and that. problematic. I'm fucking surprised yeah. you you had you don't own at least four different copies of that. Come on, vinegar syndrome. <laughs> Right, I am. I'm, if nothing else, I've learned for this. I'm going to try and check out the Satan clause. Yeah. Oh, there is also one called Santa Claus, C L A W S. So, oh right, yeah, okay, that's... Uh, which has two point eight. So clearly, that's that's a slightly more uh, successful film. That's not directed by anyone Italian, thankfully. A B movie horror actress is stalked by a deranged fan bent on claiming her for himself. At go. Christmas. At Christmas. Right. Otherwise, it's just a bit weird. Yeah, that's the twist. It's nothing to do with. It, it, it takes it, place in August. It takes place when around sort of late April, May, when Jesus was actually born. There we go. There's a. Wants <laughs> oh, to take take away from filling in the sort of Mithras worship or solstice or however the Romans justified Christmas mm. in December. Anyway, we've got off the subject a bit there. Have we anything more to say about Black Christmas? Um, if you haven't seen it, we've just completely spoiled it, but watch it anyway. Yeah, it's that, really if very enjoyable. If you, yeah, that's it's a shit. I wouldn't bother actually if you've never seen it. Listen to this first; it's really good, but we fucking ruined it. It's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're fast forwarding quickly through this, stop and and watch and watch Black Christmas. Watch Black Christmas first. Every time I read the title, I just think like Black Christmas. I think it sounds like a black exploitation film. It does, doesn't it? Y- yeah. It's like Blackula or something sort of subversive that would sort of like not be Bing Crosby. Um, yeah. Would, yeah, and like and sort of like a a good black exploitation movie, not like yes. Medea's Christmas or something like that. Sort of <laughs> Pam Pam Greer and Fred Williamson do a Christmas action movie, and now I really want to see that, and I'm sad yeah. that it doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> I'm sad that 1975 uh, doesn't exist, and I can't do it. Marvelous. Thank you for listening. The Due Signori in Giallo will be back in 2022, but until then, have a fantastic Christmas and a happy new year. Bye-bye.